All right, I like what Becky said. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. So thanks so much for coming. Merry Christmas. So uh, not going to lie to you, there's a lot more people here than what we thought. So Christmas is always our lowest attendance uh, Sunday of the year because everybody just travels. We're traveling right after this as well. So anyway, so that means that we can pray for the nursery, the nursery workers and everything. So that'd be great. All right. So this morning, I'm going to be uh, preaching about the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. So some of you are familiar with this story which is cool. Uh, some of you have only heard about this story, which is cool. Uh, some of you have maybe never heard this story at all, which is cool too. But So regardless of your familiarity um, with this story, when we come here on a Sunday, we're all on the, on the, we're all on the same level when it comes to encountering Jesus and being changed by him. So, so on this Christmas Eve morning, I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the time um, focusing on how the birth of Jesus in this passage, radically shows us how to understand and respond to the gospel. The birth of Jesus radically shows us how to understand and respond to the gospel. And that's because in this passage, we'll see that Jesus reveals himself to us, Jesus represents us, and Jesus changes us. So let's pray. So God, we're really thankful for who you are. We're thankful that you came to us. We're thankful that um, you didn't come for a short time to be human, but like you are permanently human right now, like representing us before the Father, and we're just really thankful, eternally thankful for you for that. So, um, yeah, we can talk about truth from your word, but um, your spirit is the one who makes that truth beautiful and captivating to us. So we pray that you'll empower that um, to make the person and work of Jesus to really be... Um, just captivating to us individually, but also collectively as well. And we really need you for that. And we love you. Amen. So I'll read the passage. It'll be up on the screen. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Um, I'll explain a few things here and there a little bit as I read, but I'll explain a lot, um, a lot about more, it more afterwards. So Luke says, chapter 2, verse 1, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth, from the town of Nazareth in, in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. And when they say David, they're talking about the, the Old Testament King David, who was just really the fam most famous and significant king of Israel in the Old Testament. I'll talk more about him later. Because he belonged to the house of the line of David, so he was an ancestor of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Verse 8. And, they were and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of, he 
of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. All right, so when Luke enters us into the scene of this passage here, the first person that we encounter is Caesar Augustus, and he is the, the emperor of Rome, which means he is the supreme ruler of the entire known world at that time, and he is without question the most powerful person in the world. And Luke tells us that Caesar Augustus has, verse 1, issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. And this census also needed to be taken in the nation of Israel, because even though Israel was technically still a nation, it was being occupied by the Roman Empire. And historians say that this kind of census was typically for military and taxation purposes, but for a variety of reasons, the Jewish nation, people in the Jewish nation, they, weren't, uh, they didn't need to serve in the military, but they were still subject to being taxed which was made them really mad. It's like, I kind of like how you get mad about being taxed. Anyway, you aren't being occupied, though. Those under the Roman occupation typically viewed the census as yet another means of oppression by a foreign, foreign power. And what was the best way for, the, for everyone to register for this census? Verse 3, everyone went to their own town to register. Hence, we read a man named Joseph and the pregnant woman Mary, who, verse 5, he was pledged to be married to. Together, they went on a third trimester, worst baby moon ever, to his hometown of Bethlehem, which some cheeky historians have referred to as a dumpy rural hick town. Okay. Some of you grew up in a dumpy rural hick town, and you can relate. Some of you currently live in a dumpy rural hick town, and you can especially relate. So... Man, this was, that was the place where they were. If you live in that kind of place, you're like Jesus. And it, histor it is historically debatable how old Mary and Joseph were. And I get it. It makes for a much more uh, a vibrant story and better story if they were young teenagers. And maybe they were. But Luke doesn't make their ages abundantly clear to his readers. And if he thought that was critical information, he would have said it. But the thing Luke does make abundantly clear is that there is nothing powerful, there's nothing significant, and there's nothing profoundly unique about Mary and Joseph. And I realize we are just parachuting into this passage this morning, but right before this in Luke chapter 1, we learned that even though there was nothing powerful, significant, or profoundly unique about Mary and Joseph, there was certainly something powerful, significant, and profoundly unique about Mary's unborn child. In chapter 1, we read that Mary was visited by an angel sent by God who said to her, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, which is a big deal, which we'll talk about in a minute here. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Which is a good question. Mary's a practical girl. She knows that I'd like some more information about this. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Something powerful, significant, and profoundly unique is going on with Mary's unborn child. And with that as the context, we can understand a bit more clearly why Joseph seems to have prioritized bringing Mary, who is great with child, on a physically uncomfortable business trip to his hometown in chapter 2. After all, like, what was he going to do? Just leave her in Nazareth? Like, great idea. Furthermore, some speculate that he might have brought her with him so she could avoid bearing the weight of the scandalous optics of being in her third trimester uh, while only being pledged to be married. You look very pregnant. The angel said it was okay, though. That sounds crazy. Also, did you notice the repetition of David in this passage? So Luke clearly wants his readers to know this detail. Verse 4, he says, Bethlehem is is the town of David. Again, in verse 4, he says, Joseph is in the line of David. We read outside the context of this passage that even Mary is in the line of David. It's like they're both like distant ancestors of King David. Verse 11, the angel doesn't even say the name Bethlehem, instead calls it the town of David. So the David he's referring to is King David, like I mentioned in the Old Testament, and he was the most famous and significant king in the history of Israel. And there's a lot of reasons for David being significant, but very notably, this isn't trying to play Bible trivia or kind of go deep for no reason, but this is very significant. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, God miraculously told David that someday one of his descendants in the line of David would be the promised Messiah who would come as Israel's king and he would rule and reign and that would last forever. That's why everyone in Israel was waiting for this king in the line of David with weighty anticipation for him to come just with glory and splendor and triumph to rule and reign over the nation of Israel and over the enemies of Israel, such as Caesar Augustus. There's a reason why Luke wants his readers to not miss that this seemingly insignificant baby is being born in none other than the town of David. So after Jesus is born in verse 7, the shepherds who were living out in the fields, that sounds like a terrible place to live, nearby watching over their flocks of sheep at night, are suddenly visited by an angel, which verse 9 says it terrified them. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Then in verse 13, a great company of the heavenly host, which is a fancy way of saying an army of angels, shows up praising God, which I'm assuming was extra terrifying. Just, I was just imagining that this week when I was studying this passage. Like, that, that sounds terrifying. They're singing. They're not shooting at me, but like it would just be terrifying. Then the angels leave, and the shepherds then go to Bethlehem. They, they personally encounter Jesus. Then in verse 17, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. In verse 18, 
Then, and all who heard were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And just so that there's no ambiguity about what the shepherds were thinking and feeling, verse 20, Luke says, the, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. Like I said, the birth of Jesus radically shows us how to understand and respond to the gospel. That's because, and we'll see in this passage, that Jesus reveals himself to us, Jesus represents us, and Jesus changes us. Let's start with how Jesus, we see how Jesus reveals himself to us in this passage. It's really easy to get distracted by all the stuff in verses 1 through 7 that aren't the main point. So, for example, it's easy to get distracted by all the creative license that often stems from the limited details that we see in verses 6 or 7. So maybe there were a bunch of animals. Maybe there was an innkeeper, yada, yada, yada. But um, Luke doesn't give us any, indica- give any, any indication that he's concerned about those kind of details. Like, for example, I have this friend who is obsessed with his theory that uh, Jesus was born in a cave, which I get it. Like, in, back in those days in the Near Eastern, in the Near East, like, there were, like, that's where you kept animals in their mangers, was often in caves. Like, I get it. Okay? But, like, I have a friend who's just like, I'm never buying a nativity scene unless I see a historically accurate one with a cave. And I'm like, stop talking about the cave. I just want you to stop. That can be your Christmas present to me. Stop talking about the cave. Like, those, those details are interesting to speculate about, but Luke gives no indication that he's concerned about those kind of details. Like, why is that? And what details is he concerned about? For example, here's a detail that uh, Luke wants his readers to notice. Caesar Augustus. Luke's inclusion of Caesar Augustus looms large at the beginning of chapter 2. So the mention of his name would have conjured up for Luke's readers all the power and glory of the Roman Empire and its supreme and absolute authority. Caesar Augustus, like I said, was the most powerful man in the world, and the Roman Senate in his day hailed him as, quote, the son of a god. And a famous Roman, Roman poet in the day proclaimed him as, quote, son of the deified who will make a golden age again. It's like he was writing... Caesar Augustus, it's going to make Rome great again. It's great. Like, look again at verse set, the first seven verses of this passage, because when we look at those seven verses, we can observe how Luke takes us on a downward spiral of power and influence. First, there's Caesar Augustus in verse 1, the embodiment of ruthless and supreme like glory and power and influence. Next, there's Quirinius in verse 2, who was a Roman regional governor. Next, there's Joseph in verse 4, who, from what we can tell by triangulating a bunch of information, is that he seems like he was just a run-of-the-mill, blue-collar, poor, working-class man. And next, there's Mary in verse 5, who was an unmarried pregnant woman. And then there is the capstone of Luke's downward spiral of power and influence when we see in verse 6 and 7, the baby. It would be hard to imagine a less powerful, less privileged, less influential person on the planet at that moment than this baby sleeping in a feeding trough intended for livestock. 
Like, everything about the opening verses of here is intended by Luke to point his readers to how lowly the baby was. If there was, a, if there was an org chart of power and influence, like, the baby would just be, like, like bottom. <laughs> like, if modern uh, social media, like, uh, influencers, influencers and podcasters who are just obsessed with, like, success and influence and crushing goals and just... Man, and just power in general. It's like, man, they would just be so fascinated with the top of that org chart. But no, no, like Luke is saying, look at the bottom of the org chart. That's what he's interested in because the gospel flips everything. The irony of this is obvious for those who don't, who know where Luke's narrative is headed. So the man recognized by the world as its king, Augustus lived in a kingdom surrounded by power and glory. And this child with his beginnings on the other hand, could not have been more humble and the opposite of that. But his kingdom would infinitely outstrip the power and the glory of Rome. The lowly circumstances of Jesus' birth shows us that God's kingdom will come in ways that truly shock us and subvert our expectations for what true greatness really is. So and along those lines, um, it's also easy for us as modern hearers to look at the angels first bringing the news to shepherds and just kind of yada yada that detail. But man, I was reading this week how um, shepherds were so despised and disrespected at that time in that culture that their testimony was not even admissible in court. But, it was the, but they were the ones who were given the responsibility of testifying to the royal announcement of the coming of King Jesus just flips everything. And the upshot of all this is this, like the fact that the son of God would enter the world in the most humble way imaginable and then live his life in ways that weren't considered powerful or successful by any worldly standard reveals to us some key things about the saving message of King Jesus. The saving message of King Jesus doesn't come to those who don't think they need a king. The saving message of King Jesus only comes to those who are humble enough to see their desperate need for a savior and a king. Like for example, like if you may not view yourself as someone with the kind of like power and influence and zero neediness like Caesar Augustus, but if you don't desperately sense your need for a king, outside of yourself, then Caesar Augustus is the one in this passage who you, ha who you have the most in common with. The saving message of King Jesus is only available for those humble enough to follow a king in a feeding trough. So the birth of Jesus radically shows us how to understand the gospel. We see that in how he reveals himself to us, but we also see it in how he represents us in this passage. So Luke is laboring in this passage to emphasize how, how truly human Jesus is. And big picture, the first couple chapters of Luke, when you go outside the context of this, like the first couple chapters of Luke really emphasize the humanity of Jesus. He was fully human, but why was that important? Like, um, why is Jesus being fully human essential to the gospel being good news? We often think about Jesus being fully God and how that's essential to the gospel being good news, which it is. But why is Jesus being fully human 
also essential to the gospel being good news. And certainly part of that is so that we can relate to him, of course, that's part of it. But another reason is that if he's not fully human, then how could he represent us before a holy God? Because if you try to represent yourself before an all-powerful, holy God, good luck with that. Because of your treasonous sin against God, you don't stand a chance, none of us do, at representing ourselves as we stand before an all-powerful, holy God. Like, you need a substitute to represent you. Or to use Luke's language in verse 11, you're in desperate need for a savior. Only as God did Jesus have the power to bear our sins and conquer, him, conquer them, but only as a human was he fully qualified to do so as our representative. So along those lines, theologian Greg Strand, he says the following about how kings represent their people. So he says, in modern Western world, we think, of, we think in individualistic terms about which often minimize real social solidarities with tr nation, tribe, and family. One of the institutions in Israel that demanded such solidarity of the leader as the representative of his people was the role of the king. And what he's getting at when he's saying that is that in our hyper-individualized modern world, um, we have a hard time understanding like that something really significant about kings. Like kings represent people. Because often when people think about like kings and that kind of stuff, they think about the ridiculousness of, the, of like the British monarchy and stuff. No, no, no. It's like in Bible times, like kings represented people. And with that in mind, we can see the extra significance of the angels and announcement in verse 11. Today in the town of David, the king, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Because Luke's intention here, among other things, is to point his readers to how the Messiah, King Jesus from the line of David, whose eternal kingdom will never end, who's currently in the feeding trough, he's going to represent you because that's what kings do. He will represent his people and save them from their sin. Because in his atoning death and his victorious resurrection, Jesus represents us. And as our substitute representative, he does what we could never do for ourselves. He bears our sin and our judgment on our behalf and takes it away. And as our representative, he acts on our behalf. Why? Because that's what kings do. They represent their people. And as our fully human king, he perfectly and fully represents us before a holy God. That's why if you see yourself in desperate need of a king to represent you, like the shepherds, shepherds and the commoners in this passage, then the child in the feeding trough should truly be good news to you. So in this passage, we see how Jesus reveals himself to us, how he represents us, but we also see how he changes us. So as you see in verse 10, um, when the angel says the good news to the King Jesus being born, that will 
cause great joy for all the people. So when he says all the people, that includes you. Jesus isn't an idea to be considered. He is a person to be encountered. And when we encounter him, that changes us. And it was true for the shepherds, and it's still true for us today. Like It could be reasonably argued that the shepherds gave a fairly tentative response in verse 15 after being terrified by the angels. But after they encountered King Jesus, that's when they were truly changed. And Luke really emphasizes that. Verse 9, the shepherds were terrified, it says. Terror can cause short-term results, but it can never cause great joy. So encountering Jesus is the only thing that will ever cause that kind of great joy in you that the angel proclaims in verse 10. So a good friend of mine who um, started following Jesus in the last couple years, like he recently described to me how um, looking back, it was uh, he had a friend of his who met with him like on a weekly basis just to go through these short uh, series of Bible studies in the Gospels, just like seeing who Jesus is and what he's all about. And um, you know, and my friend is an—he's an engineer type, so he's not this emotion, emotionally frothy guy or anything. But he was just like he just vividly described to me about how, man, like when he was reading about Jesus, like. It's, it wasn't an idea to be considered. Like, like, it's like he was actually encountering Jesus. And to use the language of verse 10, like his encounter with Jesus has caused great joy. And that's what cha- that has changed him. And the good news is that you don't need a dumpy rural hick town. You do not need a host of heavenly angels to miraculously appear to you. And you don't need a special date on the calendar, such as Christmas, to encounter Jesus. The call of the gospel is for you to truly come to him, to encounter him, and only bring your desperate need for a king. And not just a king, a good king and a humble king. A king who will represent you, not begrudgingly, but fully. That's why we remember him. So when we take communion together, like the bread reminds us of him because it symbolizes his body. And the drink reminds us of him because it symbolizes his blood. Like his body and blood, those were broken and shed for you as a king who perfectly represented you to an all-powerful and holy God. Like communion doesn't save you. Like, no, like encountering Jesus through faith as your forgiver and king, that's what saves you. Like communion just symbolically reminds us of our humble king who changes us when we encounter him in faith. And before you, before you take communion, like, thank him like, for, I'd encourage you, like, thank him for revealing himself to you. Thank him for representing you. Thank him for changing you. Like, you take the bread, you dip it in the juice. There's two communion stations in the back, and the worship team is going to be up here playing three songs. Anytime during those three songs, you can go back on your own and take communion. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion because like, you don't want communion to be some kind of just another thing that you just go through the motions with for sure. Like, it's not some kind of ritual. But maybe, maybe you are ready like, to encounter him as your king. Maybe you want him to represent you. 
Like, maybe you want to be changed by him. And if that's the case, like, you should pray to him, like, during the worship set here, and just pray to and encounter him through faith in him right now, and then go take communion with us. Let's pray. God, we're really thankful that like you, you call us to yourself. Thank you so much for just flipping everything upside down in terms of our expectations. Yeah, and we're thankful for you, and we love you. And we just pray that um, we thank you for representing us. Thank you for changing us. Yeah, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Yeah. yeah, and just like how I talked to you before about this before my sermon, but we just really pray that um, um, information can only be captivating if you move in us. So we just ask you for that individually and collectively for us. Amen.